right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast, sponsored by Roughneck Scarves. This is podcast number 278, and with that number, we give a shout out to Julie Ertz. In her six seasons in NWSL, Julie has played 8,278 regular season minutes, all for the Chicago Red Stars. She earned Rookie of the Year honors in 2014 and Best 11 honors twice since then. So two chats today. First with Steph Young from All for 11 and also the Two Drunk Fans podcast. Steph and I went over Olympic qualifying, uh, thoughts on players, thoughts on the games, and the early days of the Vlako and Anofsky era. And then I spoke with Cindy Lara of RSL Soapbox uh, to get an update on the Utah Royals. They've got a new coach, they've seen some player movements, and they're going into year three as the youngest NWSL franchise. And of course, in between the two chats is my new recurring segment called Jen's Planning. Each segment will explain off the field rules or procedures or look at a bit of history to explain why things are done a certain way. This week, the topic is the breakdown of the 2020 Olympic tournament slots and the teams who are still in contention for a spot. And of course, don't forget to follow me on Twitter, either Keeper Notes or Mix Zone, and that's two X's in Mix Zone. Great. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Steph Young, co-manager of All for 11, great women's soccer site, as well as one of the hosts of Two Drunk Fans. Steph, thanks for joining me today to finally do a recap of the big CONCACAF Olympic qualifying tournament. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So I don't think it was any surprise uh, that, that we qualified for the for the 2020 Olympics. Um but I feel like this tournament, I don't know, felt a little stronger, uh, if, if that's the right word, than maybe what we saw in, in 2018 World Cup qualifying. Um, Mexico, uh, I don't think it's right to say they're regaining their form so much as we're seeing, you know, a new group transition in. Um, Costa Rica definitely regained their form from 2018, gave Canada a good run. Um, and then, of course, as usual, the final ends up being USA, Canada, and well, once again, the, the U.S. women come out on top. But but let's talk about the semifinal, USA, Mexico. Um, we've played Mexico so many times over the years. I think it's only China and, and Canada that the U.S. women have played more. Uh, but talk about that semifinal. You were there in, in Carson, California. Um, pretty good crowd. What were your thoughts on that match? I thought, actually, my primary thought was it was such a shame that CONCACAF didn't advertise this more because there's such a huge Spanish-speaking population in that area. And in Texas as well. And in, Mm -hmm. you know, whether they're Mexico fans or U.S. fans, I think either way, that would have been a really great draw for the Spanish-speaking crowd. And I saw, like, zero advertisement in either location. Like maybe right. one sign somewhere, but not really. <laughs> um, I think CONCACAF really beefed it on that front, and they could have had – I mean, the fact that they got the attendance they did, I think it was 11,200-something for USA-Mexico. Um, and that was a really great crowd, and it sounded really good. 
on that front, yeah, I was a little disappointed. Um, not that CONCACAF cares about that opinion. Uh, on the soccer front, I really enjoyed it. I think we're seeing the Vyko Ananovsky era really taking hold. And I think that in this tournament, Kristen Press has really pushed the argument that she needs to be a starter, particularly when the team can't rely on Alex Morgan for the near future. When Kristen Press was awarded the Golden Ball Sunday, I was like, yes. Like, great choice. You know, yeah, it, I don't it, think... Yeah, you could probably argue for maybe somebody else, but you also, like, when Kristen Press got, I think everyone was like, yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I loved watching Vladko celebrate every goal so excitedly, especially in the semi and final, right? The most competitive matches. Um, just that absolute joy. Like it, it reminded me of something that Megan Rapino said to us, uh, you know, before the tournament started in, in the mix zone is that she's like, right now he's a kid in a candy store and, and I'm not sure he can contain himself. You know, she's like, I don't think he's been sleeping. He's been, you know, so excited with all of his new toys. Right. So it's, it's like just that absolute joy. Um, it's just something it's just, just different on the sideline, right? It's not, it's not a better or worse than Jill Ellis kind of thing, but just a very different vibe. It has like strong crowd dad energy a little bit, but also I think Pino mentioned, I went to um, media availability at practice and she mentioned like, he probably has like 50 binders. Maybe that's exaggerated, <laughs> but I don't think it's by much. He has a reputation for being the most prepared guy on the field. And so I think it's just a culmination of him. Like this is when it really counted, right? He had some friendlies to warm up, but this is like, he needed to come through and they came through in style. And so he was just like, yes, I like all the plans came together. The players look great. He's a guy who has a reputation for being invested in his players development. So yeah, uh, there is, there are, I think there are a lot of different factors here that all culminated in uh, the big arms and like the strong pump. And I, I loved seeing how much rotation there was in the roster. I, I don't remember being that much rotation in qualifying in 2016. Every player except Adriana French got minutes. And, and it seemed like the, the field rotation was, was pretty healthy, partly to protect the health of some players, you know, to rest some players. And, and obviously you've got the crunch of five games and in a pretty short span, but it just, it seemed like, Hey, everybody's got something to contribute. Um, we've got time with some, you know, some players missing to experiment. Let's do it. You know, within the framework of, you know, this is still uh, an important tournament. I would agree. I, the only player I think who didn't get rotated uh, before the final was Crystal Dunn, which is a warning sign. I think one that we've had for a while and Blacko is probably very aware of it, but he doesn't have a lot of time at the moment where our fullback pool is certainly very shallow at the moment um, because he's doing things like having to push Emily Sonnet out there uh, or like pull Allie Krieger in centrally. Although I really like that move based on the improvement she's shown um, where she's talked about working on her entry passes. So I really like that, but yeah, it is a little bit worrisome and I'm kind of wondering about like the Casey short, not being in camps 
you know, of late and not having that pool expanded out. I know the roster is going to be really tight for the Olympics. So maybe it just, there's no point right now. Uh, or maybe that means there's even more point to bring in Casey short. But my other side is I think black is always going to value the versatility that Sonnet has to play central or wide and can be good at both of those versus Casey short excelling at the wide position, but not being able to come central. Right. And, and I would think going into she believes next month when we know the rosters are a little bit bigger that, you know, we should see Casey Short come back in. But uh, again, like you're saying that, you know, without that flexibility of being able to play different positions, you know, what does that mean for you when he can only take 18 players to Japan? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I knew we'd see at least one other keeper play, right? So Ashlyn Harris got got one game in the group stage. Um, I kind of thought maybe it would be France, right? Because Harris has more caps, though it's still it's not a big number. France still just sitting on two caps. Uh, you know, you, you have to imagine that really his choice is who's going to be the number two to Nair, right? Um, right. But how do we, or how does he rather in this short time span uh, before a roster is named in June um, really give, you know, give both backup keepers a chance to, to prove their worth. I, I feel like I we're back in, really- we're back in 2016 where, you know, same issue. Yeah. I was actually really disappointed not to see French particularly when it had been guaranteed that the U.S. was going to advance into semifinals. And then, like, you know, the third game was actually against Costa Rica. So it's not like that would have been a game where I I actually really took it to heart when Ashlyn Harris was like, I don't want to disrespect my opponent, so I'm never going to talk about them like, oh, I could switch off. And, in fact, many goalkeepers have said games where the offense is in the other half are actually much harder mentally because they switched on. But there's not. But how do you do that when the action is all on the other side of the field? So I don't want to fall into that trap. And also Costa Rica, out of that group, was probably going to give the United States the hardest time. So I thought that would have been a great time to see France come on and deal with an opponent who's at least probably going to, you know, put the ball on frame a couple times at least or get in the area or have to deal with crosses or a couple of set pieces. So I was a little disappointed not to see that rotation, but you know what, I think at this point, Ananofsky's kind of earned the benefit of a doubt when it comes to his player management. So I, I guess I'll just have to take that disappointment into the NWSL season. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's such a quandary of, okay, you know, the that group stage was really the only games the team is going to have uh, before the roster is named that are, you know... Uh, light enough, let, let, let's let say, where you can experiment with a keeper, right? But then, like you're talking about, you know, what if they don't get any experience from it? Um, I, I thought we were lucky in a way with She Believes last year that we ended up seeing each keeper get one game. And I, you know, that wasn't planned, uh, you know, initially going into the tournament, but at least, hey, you know, France got her her first cap uh, before the world cup and, you know, Harris got some more minutes. Um, I, I, I don't think I'd see him, you know, do that for, for the, for this tournament, um, especially with the, uh, you know, three very different kinds of 
of opponents that you know, I, I think you'd want your number one to have those. But, you know, so I guess, does this mean like he's dependent on how they look in NWSL, you know, like the first six, seven weeks of the, of the season before they, you know, before they, he has to name the roster. I mean, he said flat out in uh, response to a question during um, a press conference, he was like, yeah, NWSL performance does matter. And you can believe it because it's Flacco. He came out of NWSL. He, um, I guess, reached the, the league um, having experienced it. So I think even if France didn't get to play, it will matter what she does with Portland, just the way it'll matter what Mel Pugh does over at Sky Blue now. <laughs> That's going to uh-huh. be fun. Stuff like that. Or like <laughs> whatever Casey Short does. So I wouldn't, yeah, I would agree that this is not her last chance to perform. Um, I am just still like in the back of my mind, like, God forbid, what if Ashton Harris gets injured or something? Then you have a keeper. Right. That's a little international experience. So we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, and let's talk a little bit about about Canada. Um, you know, once again making the final, once again losing the US um and Ugh. you know, I know how frustrating that is for them. I you know, when when we still had a Aaron McLeod on on the dash, it was something she she spoke a lot about. Um, yeah, and of course Sinclair, you know, she was actually playing for Canada two of the three times when they beat the U.S., you know, so, uh, you know, I'm sure she can share that with, <laughs> with with the younger players. But how do you see Canada um, maybe progressing since last summer's somewhat disappointing World Cup performance? I would say that there's like a glimmer of something there that could be really fun. Uh, Kenneth Heiner-Muller addressed this directly when he was asked, you know, in the summer and fall, especially in the fall, they had a lot of 1-0 results. It looked like they were playing not to lose, and they also got mm-hmm. beat badly 4-0 by some other nations. Um, and then in the tournament, at least in group stage, they come out, they're having fun, they look attacking, uh, they look dynamic in the attack. They're trading in younger players. Jordan Heidema looks like she's ready to really become the centerpiece of this pack in the next level. And then obviously, you know, when it really counts, they tighten up against Costa Rica and then they have some mental lapses against the United States. So I think the idea is there. But the execution, I'm not sure if it's going to happen either from a talent or a mental perspective. Because as much as I love Canada, I love them so much, I really feel (laughs) like they had this mental bugaboo, not just about the United States, but like... The United States' psychological work, I think, has gained a certain amount of status amongst fans and other athletes because it's apparent they've done some incredible sports psychology there to get everybody on the same page about winning and effort and always believing that they can win no matter how badly the game is going. And I don't think Canada has gotten there yet. So you saw the way they played against Costa Rica. It was a 1-0 game. It was, it was bad Canada all over again, like tightening up, afraid to lose, like not, not willing to take a risk. And then the same thing against the USA where they came out in a 5-3-2 where, well, actually it was kind of a good plan. It was pretty smart for the first 60 minutes. But again, you know, they made one mistake and then another one and then another one. So I think it's a combination of needing a little more talent 
they've got some kids coming up that could do it. And then working on the mental component where they get them so that they, they don't just flatten out or tighten up or get too nervous, but ways to deal with that anxiety. Well, and, and I feel like, um, you know, it's, it's often assumed that, you know, Canada has the same resources as, as the U S and, you know, they, they don't, right. Um, you know, even the, the federation subsidized players, you know, we all know ballpark what the U S subsidized players are making from the CBAs we've seen. Um, we don't know the Canadians other than we know it's much, much, much lower, which is why we've seen some Canadians. It does make more sense for them to go, to Europe because if they're if they're a subsidized player in NWSL, they're not going to be making you know not going to be making as much um, you know there's we know there's so much potential uh, you know in, in their player pool and it just seems like it's not not getting the attention that it should I, I was so happy to see that that you know they finally scheduled another home game you know in in, in April where here you've got. Christine Sinclair, you know, um, broke Abby Wambach's record like, you know, we knew would eventually happen, Um, you know, not having played at home since what, last spring sometime, you know, and then um, breaking the record in front of what, maybe 200 people in front of what you and I both know is a beautiful stadium in the Rio Grande Valley, but it's a tiny stadium and that's not, you know... (laughs) <laughs> it's just, I don't yeah. think it did her justice, you know, it's, uh, yeah. And it, and it's a shame. It's a shame that Canada, just like world cup qualifying, Canada was assigned to that venue for all of its group games, you know, uh, and it's just, it's, it's affordable. I get that. We know that CONCACAF, um, you know, doesn't have a lot of money, uh, but it's just, it, it's a shame. And I, and I you know, soccer. Yeah. It is a combo of they don't have a ton of money. They can't afford to put on 15 home friendlies a year like U.S. soccer. Right. And at the same time, it's a combo of them not caring enough. Like 2012. 2012 was the year for Christine Sinclair. It was the hype around her and the team was insane. And it was fueled by a mixture of like patriotism and a lot of anger at the United States over that Olympic Mm -hmm. game. And I think she was nominated for the Lou Marsh Award that year. She was on the Blonde Or shortlist with other 10 players. And you're telling me Canada Soccer couldn't scrape together the resources for one home friendly after the Olympics? Right. Like um, a friendly, right. they would be, it would be guaranteed to be a sellout with the right marketing and the right market. Like they, they probably could have made their money back and they just didn't do it. I was astonished. <laughs> following following they had hosted olympic qualifying that january and had larger crowds than the u.s has had for olympic qualifying um you know and they hosted every single game in vancouver and still had like over twenty thousand for for the semifinals yeah it's just like (laughs) it's like these are your stars and and it was funny, I was talking to Laura Armstrong from the Toronto Star last week, and, and she said, it is still hard for Canadians to be like, yeah, I have the record. Yeah, we have the record. You know, but but that this is something so huge, you know, needs to be celebrated, right? Um, you know, at least they've got that game in April that, that they can, you know, build around. But 
yeah, just so much potential loss. And and then I compare that to Mexico with you know the launch of Liga Mex Femenil. It's it's been so great to see that you know regular games week in week out building a player pool uh you know how they started where first it was only a U23 league and you could you had to be a uh, Mexican national and then they're slowly opening it up by age and Mexican Americans and and stuff like that and i think the Mexico we saw in this tournament was still a transition you know but you can see you can see what that's going to do for them. And and I kind of wish I kind of wish there was some story uh, uh, around Costa Rica that was similar, right? Like we can see the talent of Raquel Rodriguez and Dinia Diaz and Shirley Cruz. Oh my god, that goal she had. Uh I think that was the first night. Yeah, and the and the opening doubleheader was insane. Um but, you know, what how can how can they elevate their program? You know, and, right. and, it, and so, to me, it's not it's, to me, it's not about, oh, there needs to be more spots in the Olympics. Like, no, there needs to be something more, more ongoing. Um, Amelia Valverde straight up said that she would love for her team to have five or six home friendlies a year. Like, that's all she's asking for. And she and that's the number that she thinks that with that, they could get the team to some kind of consistency, which is such a shame because you look at them in this tournament and you could see they were organized they had a plan they they know what they're doing but they just don't have the structural support in order to be doing this regularly and you think about like they could be challenging mexico maybe even canada to become a a regular CONCACAF contender if they just got that much more support and they could play more games and maybe if CONCACAF was willing to put on a few more regional like sub-regional tournaments so in the caribbean areas or the central america areas something like that and not just for the full international but you know down through the u20 level as well and i think they're a little better maybe on the youth side but there's just got to be more there's got to be more opportunities for these players to play or else you know once every four years or once like every cycle with the world cup or the olympics it's just they're always going to be stuck exactly where they are. Yeah, and and then you think too about the teams that didn't make the semifinals, like Haiti, which seemed so much stronger than what we've seen in the past. Um, you know, and, yeah. and Jamaica. Yeah. Now it's like, well, so do they go dark until we have qualifying and you know fall twenty twenty two? It's like that's two and a half years, and you lose development you know, can all those players find somewhere to play during that time? Like it's just, and, and I don't think it's in, I don't think there's any easy fix for it. It's, you know, we know that CONCACAF is not like UEFA. It doesn't have deep pockets where they can say, Oh, you know, we're going to give each country, you know, here's a quarter million euros to invest in women's soccer, you know? Right. But there's gotta be some, you know, some way to help these teams uh, not go dark. Um, and of course, then, then then that's separate from the whole challenge of like, if you look at the pre-qualifying for Central America for the Olympics, like the number of teams that dropped out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that just, just like, ah, uh, you know, I, I mean... The, the one long conversation I had with Karina LeBlanc last, last fall when we first met in person was just like the work she was trying to do to just make sure uh, countries were actually putting teams together. 
you know, well, I think if uh, um, they can't like dig out the money, then the fee- responsibility goes up to FIFA. Like FIFA, either your mission statement says you're developing football for everybody or you're not. So if you've got a confederation that is struggling to develop soccer, well, guess what? That's your responsibility. Because <laughs> you've got plenty of money in the bank, FIFA. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's always a mixed bag for me at these tournaments where, you know, we're excited to see the progress of the U.S. and excited about Canada. And then there's, you know, good and bad with with all the other pieces. And then, like you mentioned, um, the attendance, because I think U.S. fans are so used to much larger crowds. But, of course, a, a game that is run by U.S. soccer that benefits U.S. soccer, they market much more broadly than they do uh, the CONCACAF tournaments. And I'll never fully understand, you know, how all of that works that, uh, you know, they're not doing as much grassroots promotion as, as I would expect, you know, and, and like you talked about LA, it's like so close to the Mexico border, right? Like there should be, you know, yeah, there should be local there, Spanish speaking there should be a push. and there should be yeah. traveling Mexican bands as well. They could have gotten probably thousands more people into those stadiums in L.A., into that stadium in L.A. But you know what? They just, just the motivation vanished like a fart in the wind. Yeah. So, well, so looking ahead for the U.S. Women's National Team, we've got She Believes coming up next month. Uh, slightly bigger roster. So, Based on performances from from this tournament, I mean, who are who are your first people to go? Oh, she's definitely in for she believes, and maybe who are some people that were not part of this tournament that you'd like to see for, for the she believes roster? Um, I think Lynn Williams and Kristen Press, you have to take them. I think Allie Krieger has really made an argument for keeping her around. Um, I think actually kind of on the bubble here, Jess McDonald, I don't think she particularly showed off her skill set, even in games against, like you said, lighter teams where she should have just been like tearing back lines to pieces and she didn't. Um, Mm -hmm. So those are the ones who really stood out to me. I think our midfield is as solid as ever. So if you were like, yeah, it's going to be Lindsay Horan, Sam Ewis, Julie Ertz, Rose Lavelle, I'd be like, yeah, of course, why not? And then I do wish Andy Sullivan had gotten a lot more time this tournament, but I would love to see her brought along. And it feels like everybody's pretty healthy right now, right? Like that, that month off in December, you know, it did what it was supposed to do. I honestly, Megan Rapino seemed tired to you. She seems tired to me. Her face looks very tired. She does. Like, just, You're right. She does. Yeah. Not not necessarily in the face even, but just looking at her on the field and the amount of running and the amount of minutes that she's getting, it feels like she's tired. It feels a little bit like she used up a lot for the World Cup. And then she just limped through the end of your season. And even now her body is just kind of not bouncing back the way it might have five, yeah. 10 years ago. I don't want to speculate it's between her and the trainer, but based on the, on the field product, it seems like she's a little tired. And I think that's the biggest challenge of having Olympics come so quickly on the heels of the women's world cup where, you know, she had, she had, 
you know, what Carly Lloyd had in, in 2015, right? You know, like all the accolades, all the awards probably, you know, tripled her, her frequent flyer miles, you know, mm-hmm. um, return somewhat towards the end of the, the season to, you know, play out the season with the rain. And I was stunned that she played the full 120 minutes in the semifinal versus, you know, North Carolina. Um, but yeah, that's, that's like, you know, she's carrying like an extra burden uh, than doing, you know, than, than what a lot of her teammates have. Um, right. And, and then of course, blame her because yeah, she's yeah. not going to have this kind of spotlight ever again, the rest of her life. Probably she's got to, exactly. She's got to make that count while she can. And then of course there's, you know, the player whose performance we really haven't talked about. That's another question mark is Carly Lloyd. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, Carly was a, she's kind of average in this tournament, maybe, maybe even a little below average in some games by Carly standards. Well, one of the things that uh, I, I really enjoyed from hearing from uh, Becca Morris when she spoke at my event in the fall, someone asked her what she thought about Vlako Andonovsky, and she talked about when she played for him at FC Kansas City. <laughs> And she she said, you know, he created such a professional environment in the least professional place. But more importantly, she mentioned that every game, if you played, even at, even you know maybe just ten minutes, you met with him afterwards to go over all your touches on video. So you always knew what you did well, what you didn't do well, you know, where you stood with the team. Um, and based on some of the things that Carly has said about previous coaches where it's like, you know, I was just told I was, wasn't going to start or I didn't get to do this. I, I'd have to assume that Vlaco is being really clear with her, you know, for any of these games where she was subpar, just like, nope, not going to cut it. Nope, not going to cut it. This was good. That was bad. This is good. You know, like, and that's, mm-hmm. I'd like to think that's, that's exactly what, what she would need right now. So I was actually having right. a conversation with someone else uh, about Carly and her relationship with Blackout at the moment. And I think Carly has had a little bit of a renaissance recently, like both national team wise and for a club. Um, and, you know, maybe she had a little slump in this tournament, but I think this kind of like revitalization is because Blackout is challenging her. And he's like, you say you're the best, well, prove it to me. I need you to be the best at this, this, and this. So go out there and do that. And Carly's the kind of person who's like, if you tell me I'm not the best at something, well, too bad, pal. I'm going <laughs> to dedicate 500% <laughs> of all my energy, physical and mental, to proving you wrong. She loves proving people wrong. And I don't know how that's how Black Coat's managing her, but some way or another, he, I do see that she seems to have more of a spark. I didn't maybe to come through, but the other thing is, we've seen this before, right? Carly hasn't performed super well leading up into a tournament. And then in the tournament, it's like bangerang all the time, where in the big game where you really need her, she just lights up and is like, well, you didn't believe in me before. You're the fool. <laughs> Your loss. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 that's, and that's the kind of thing, like, we, you know, we almost never get those stories, it's especially not when they're happening, right? It's, it's something that you hear about later when a player s- says, oh, it was so great that this coach did this for me. Or, you know, or like, uh, you know, Carly said about Jill, I was just told that, you know, I wasn't going to get to start. Um, 
But I would have to think based on, you know, all all the great things that we've heard from so many different NWSL players about how Vlaka runs things that, yeah, she's got, she's got a new lease on life for, for lack of a, a, a better phrase. Um, and that's also why I'm really intrigued to see what the roster is going to be for She Believes. And I'm assuming that there, there will be like a camp for it that maybe has a few extra people and then they cut it down to what, 23, 24, you know, um, just because Vlaco sees, seems to see things a different way. And it, what I loved about the camp in December was just seeing, Ooh, that's, those are people he's looking at down the line, right? You know, you can get a sense of what he likes and what style he's, he's, he's trying to go for. So you get to yeah, there's he just, there's... probably have like a four year plan for every player who's ever so much has had a sniff at U23, U20, U17 level. Well, and that reminds me, um, how cool was it to see Laura Harvey on the sidelines? It was very cool. And it's actually, so I've been talking to some of the new youth team coaches, like Tracy Kevins, who's now up with the 17s, and uh, Matt Porter. And it's obviously early because they've all just kind of come on board, but they've already all talked about how important it is for them to quickly come in line with Vlaco's planning and like the senior team style of play and how Blackco a lot of times if the youth national teams are present for a senior team camp, um, they'll always have a couple of players from the younger groups come up and play a level, play a level up because he wants to see how these players do when they're thrown in all of a sudden to the next level and who's ready to make the step mentally and physically. So I think the, the, preparation for what happens after this Olympics, it's already been put in motion. The moment Blacko like arrived in Chicago, he's like, I want to look at these players and these players and I have a plan for this player and like this one is going to play well. It's that sort of thing. So it really seems like the youth level from the seventeen up at least, that they're really I mean, it not not quite right away because there are some tournaments that are going to be happening at the youth level as well coming up. So they're preparing for those first. And then after that they're really going to put all their heads together and be like, we are going to create a cohesive pipeline for like shuttling these kids all the way up from like age 14, 15 until they're ready to step into the national team, whatever age that might be. It's, it's a whole new era. It's the Vlako Adonofsky era. It's, well, it Steph, feels good so far. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to rehash Concacaf and uh, and of course talk all things U.S. Women's National Team with me. And uh, you know, good luck with all your writing, not only for All for Eleven but also the Athletic and uh, Stars and Stripes FC. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Time for a little gensplaining. Today's topic, the breakdown of Olympic qualifying, or rather the breakdown of the 12 slots for the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. So the women's tournament has 12 teams currently. Eight of those teams we already know for 2020. Four more have yet to be determined. So of course, host Japan, they get an automatic berth. Europe gets three slots and their three slots were determined by performance at last summer's Women's World Cup. So the three European semifinalists were the highest finishers. 
being Netherlands, Sweden, and England. England will compete as Team GB, or other Team Great Britain, at the Olympics. And the reasoning behind that, that's topic for a whole separate chance planner. <laughs> CONCACAF gets two slots. And as we know, those were decided last Friday as USA and Canada each won their semifinal in the Olympic qualifying tournament. New Zealand gets the only Oceania berth since it won the December 2018 Oceania Football Championship, which was the same tournament that decided Oceania's Women's World Cup team. Similarly, Brazil qualified for the Olympics by winning their Confederations Championship, which was the Copa America Feminina, back in April 2018. So the remaining four slots, after those eight, there'd be two teams from Asia. The next to last round of Asian qualifying just wrapped up, and so that field of teams has been reduced to four. So Australia will face Vietnam in a two-game series, during the March FIFA window. And at the same time, China will play a two-game series against South Korea. So the winners of those two matchups will qualify for the Olympics. And then there will be at least one team from Africa. It's Cameroon and Zambia. They will play a two-game series next month in that FIFA window to decide which team gets Africa's automatic Olympic, Olympic berth. And then the final Olympic team will be determined in an April playoff series between the loser of the African series and Chile, who was the runner-up at the 2018 Copa America Femenina. So in conclusion, (laughs) by March 11th, we'll know three of the last four teams for the Olympics, and the field will be complete by April 15th when when that playoff series finishes up. And then the draw to separate these teams into three groups of four will be held April 20th. All right. I know that's a lot to take in. Best place to look up uh, if you want more details on this or you don't remember everything that I said. Uh, There's pretty good uh, breakdown of qualifying on Wikipedia and also FIFA.com. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Cindy Lara, the Utah Royals editor for RSL Soapbox. Um, Cindy, thanks for joining me today. I'm so excited to finally get to catch up on all the Utah stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's going to be exciting. (laughs) Finally, um, you know, we've, we've seen some movement in the past six weeks where, you know, you and I both know it was a pretty quiet off season. Um, So First, we, we got everything happening before the draft, the draft itself, a little lull. And now, you know, as we're what, basically four weeks from preseason kicking off, things are, are just starting to get going again. So, of course, the big news from your neck of the woods is Utah has a new coach. So tell me, Tell me what you know about the process of hiring Craig Harrington and, and also the press conference last week and, and your impressions so far. Yeah, so uh, I know that Utah did a pretty expansive search for this coach. Obviously, you have you have to replace Will Harvey, who was really huge and took everyone by surprise, I think, uh, that's out there. And um, yeah, I believe... Craig Harrington was the very last coach to be interviewed for um, wow. decision, and yeah, so that's that's and 
they really were like, okay, this is, this is our guy. And, you know, they interviewed about around 15, if not more, um, men and women. I think half of them were women. So um, something about Craig just stood out and it was just his focus on developing players. And I think, we don't think that is the shift now that Utah is making. They want to focus more on developing those younger players. And obviously, you know, you can only have your upper, you know, not upper 30, but like you have your players or your key players. You have your Kelly O'Hara, you have your Becky Sabran, Vera Boquette, uh, Desiree Scott. They're all, you know, in their 30s, which they're still very good players, but we can't expect them to play forever, obviously. Right. And, and so now I think Utah has finally realized that, hey, we need to think about the future. We need to think about the future of our club. And we can't have the focus on these really good, you know, international players um, who may retire in the next coming years. But um, so that was something that really stood out about Harrington is he just, and he comes from Chicago and, you know, Rory Dames is really good at that. He's really good at taking those young players and developing them. Um, and he's had a pretty good, solid Chicago Red Star side. And that's what Craig Harrington was a part of the past two years. So that's the new vision for Utah Royals FC, which um, we can talk about, you know, who was holding that back, or maybe they just realized that it was time to do that. Um, and they wanted a coach who could really just foster that a little bit more. Um, so it's really exciting. I think as far as I think he's the best coach that was out there for Utah Royals FC. Besides, we talked a lot about on our side of Soapbox, we talked a lot about just Scott Parkinson because he's been with the club for two years. He knows the players. And I think he would have had a little bit more input with his style. And most, I mean, I think most of us were hoping that it would be Scott Parkinson just because of how familiar we are with him. But um, if it wasn't Scott, I think Craig is, is the right fit. And um, I've heard nothing but good things about him. It's, he's very popular with the players, the coach, you know, with, with the coaching staff. With um, So it's, you want to have a coach who has a gear reputation. I know that Rain FC, and this is obviously it's a topic for another different day, but Rain FC hired a coach. It's, you know, it's a very questionable hiring. So I'm glad we don't have to deal with that aspect of <laughs> <laughs> well, I would, I would, um, I, I guess I would, I would, instead of questionable, I would say controversial. Okay. You know, okay. Because yeah, I, I know what you're trying to, trying to say is that it does mm-hmm. bring up a lot of questions, but it's, it's like, we know why they hired him, but you're still like, okay, really? But yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's dramatic enough that it, it gets people you know, commenting and getting engaged in maybe a way that isn't as productive as, hey, why don't we release the schedule? That'll really get people engaged, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. No, so I'm glad that they picked someone that doesn't have a shady history. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, does it, so, I mean, how how has the fan reaction been, um, you know, in Utah in terms of it wasn't Scott and it's not a woman or how hard is it to replace Laura Harvey? I mean, what, what kind of things have you heard? Yeah. I think people are just so familiar with the past two years. I think, I think losing Laura 
was a shock. I, I think it, it caught everybody off guard. And right. so you go, from, right. yeah. To, Cause you know, everyone was, we knew last October, like last fall, she was, you know, she interviewed for the U S head coaching job, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was, she was, she was in that, in that potential of going to the U S soccer main job. But, um, you know, end of the season, she, she guaranteed, she said she'll come back and that's what we were expecting. So, um, very, very surprising 2020 news as the year kicked off. But um, yeah, there, there's just been a lot of surprise and, you know, fans are, it, it's really cool because it has engaged the fans a little bit more on the Utah side of, okay, what's going to happen? What's going on? And who's going to be the coach? And this is who we want. And I think the fan favorite was Scott Parkinson. Um, okay. We talked about Emil, we talked about Emil Pelvid, but um, Steph Lee said, um, she did an interview with the Salt Lake Tribune and they just don't think she's there, which, you know, um, I don't know. I think it would have been cool to be a former player. I was, uh, I was thinking about that too. Um, yeah. but, but I realized that like, she, I, I, w- I would agree with Steph. She's not there yet having really just been handed the, the reserves, but it's the kind of thing like to, to me, it, I was so relieved to see in the announcement that she is still going to be part of the team, right? Because that that's that's your creating pathways for the for the future. Where okay, she's had one season in charge of a semi pro team with the short season where you don't really mm-hmm. do trades anything. You, you know, it's like now that's that's not enough. But that's a great like yeah, let's keep her on that pathway, right? And and, yeah. and that and that's yeah. why similarly with. Uh, Craig Harrington leaving Chicago, it's kind of cool to see that Julianne Sitch, a former Chicago Red Stars player, has now been named um, one of the assistant coaches. You know, like that, like let's mm-hmm. let's keep doing those pathways because that means that every time there's a new head coaching position that you've got a bigger and bigger pool of women who have NWSL experience, right? Like the biggest hurdle is the first one of how do you get someone as a head coach, right? Like how do we find another Laura Harvey? But mm-hmm. I, I feel at least with having an Amy LaPel bit and Steph Cox, you know, last year at the rain and, and that kind of thing. And now Twyla Kaufman at the dash, like, yeah, mm-hmm. let's keep building that pool. But anyway, back to Utah, back to Utah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah. As far as excitement goes for, I think now once fans and people got to know a little bit more about his background, his history, those people are excited and um, yeah, are looking forward to see what he does with this squad in 2020. And it, it was interesting to to look at his background. I, I hadn't realized that he had coached uh, the Turks and Caicos men's national team. You know, mm-hmm. obviously he's, he's, another Brit coming over. <laughs> I mean, obviously, obviously he's, he's been here for a little while. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, at least you've got someone who's already familiar with NWSL. I think that's the biggest challenge. Um, and it does remind me a little bit of, of MLS in its first decade, mm-hmm. as you have this small pool of people that seem to move around to the mm-hmm. different coaching gigs. And at a certain point you have to break that open, but then mm-hmm. you're bringing in someone that maybe isn't familiar with the league and that, you know, you know like, like you, like you're referencing the, the new rain head coach, that will be really interesting, right? Because he's never coached right. in the States. He's never coached in this league. You know, he does know some of the players, but yeah. How does that translate where Utah is getting someone who 
has already been part of NWSL for the last couple of seasons. You know, I, I noticed he does have a, a women's coaching certificate from FIFA. He's mm-hmm. been part of a team that's gone to the playoffs multiple mm-hmm. times. So that's, you know, that's, that's kind of a great thing to, to bring on board. For sure. And I think, I think having somebody hired within the league, I think that really just shows um, the growth of the league, but also that, you know, we don't have to go outside of the NWSL. I, I think it's okay. Like rain if yeah. did that, you know, but I, I think, I think to keep it internal, like, within the league, I think that just shows that um, there can be coaches brought in from the league within the league itself. So I'm glad it was someone from within the league and not some, you know, random name that we just heard about, you know? Well, and and I guess my my point with uh, Craig is he's from within the league, but he was an assistant as opposed to, it's not a head, Mm -hmm. it's not a head coach reshuffle. Right. Right. You know, and and so hopefully down the line we'll see. You know, next round, Lapelbit will have more experience under her belt, so she'll be under consideration, right? I would assume okay. Twyla okay. would be under consideration down the line, Julianne mm-hmm. Sitch, yeah, that that kind of thing. So, yeah, like I, I feel like the the league is established enough, and we're seeing all of the franchises invest more in their infrastructure, so. You know, I think of back with FC Kansas City, and that was just a little over two years ago. They never listed any anybody other than Vlako as uh, on their coaching staff for their game notes, right? I like I could right. not find any assistant coaches, right? Now mm-hmm. and like last year for for Houston was the first year that they had four full time coaches, right? So, so mm-hmm. it, it's like with that infrastructure improvement, you're actually broadening that pool of people that you can choose from down the line. So, so yeah, like it does make, it does make Craig seem like, you know, a very natural hire, right? Like Mm -hmm. he's had success Mm -hmm. in the league. He knows the league, but he has some outside experiences too. Yeah. Yeah. Have you had the chance have you had the chance to talk to any of the, the players who may be in market about their thoughts or, you know, what, what else did you hear from the press conference of um, reaction so far? Yeah, it's all been positive. We actually, I well, I didn't, but um, our our staff did an interview with Michelle Mimone on Wednesday, and the players already knew um, right. who it was. Yeah, so I actually did not make the press conference, but I was able to listen in, and yeah, I think he just he just brings a lot of good experience from like an NWSL standpoint, and um, I'm 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 excited to to see what he does, and. Yeah, just just excitement. Just, just you know, you get so used to one head coach like Laura Harvey, right? Um, iconic yeah. head coach, right? I yeah, iconic. So it it, it is putting you know him on. What are you going to do? That's different from Laura and similar. And I think he even said like, you know, Laura already built a foundation with this team. You know, like Laura inherited that FC Kansas City team, and she had to do some work about that, but she's laid the foundation and he doesn't want to mess too much with it. So he wants to be respective of the foundation that Laura Harvey had, but now he just wants to build on it and obviously make it greater. And so I'm excited what he's going to do with, you know, a Kristen press or even the new draftee. Um, gosh, I'm mind blank. Oh, Ziara. Yes. Ziara? Yeah. Yeah. So 
what he's going to do with that young coach. So he has a good foundation of players. Um, and obviously that has changed a lot within the past year that, you know, Laura inherited, you know, that Kansas City team. And she's been able to add her little touches and, and, and you know, bringing in Crescent Press was huge. And um, so I, I think he's, the excitement is there to see what he does with what was in the past, but also, you know, moving ahead and forward with it because we've, we know last year and, you know, Kansas, not, I'm sorry, Royals, they should have been a playoff team if, if you know, that they have that. that well, especially that like, run in August. Yeah. yeah. You're like, damn. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So they should have been a playoff team. They should have been in the playoffs, but, you know, something happened and we just can't quite figure out what happened. Um, did Laura lose the team? Maybe. Um, you know, I've heard that, you know, when you don't trust your bench, that kind of may deplete some confidence and, you know, lose. I don't know. But mm-hmm. we, you know, we, we can see what happens. Um, so maybe she did lose the locker room a little bit. I don't know. You know, you kind of hear those things. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that um, Craig is, is really that player's coach. And I think Laura was a very player's coach. Um, but that he trusts his bench and, you know, trusts the team as a whole. And, um, yeah. So we'll and, and, and we'll find, find that balance of, hey, you guys had a lot of great things going. We don't need to start from scratch. We just mm-hmm. need to make, make some minor modifications. And, and of course, we've seen right. some, you know, some roster moves already before Craig was even named head coach. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, last month we had the announcement that Erica Timorak, one of the NWSL originals, who, you know, she was drafted in mm-hmm. 2013. She announced her retirement. Um, last week, I think it was Mandy Lattish announcing her retirement, who unfortunately soccer fans have not gotten to see very much in the last couple of years due to injury. Mm-hmm. And then Utah waving. Becca Moros. So first, you know, tell me about what you thought when you heard that Erica Timrak was retiring. I think for her, that one was, that one was a little surprising. Um, in, in a, in a sense that maybe she would want to give it another year, but we saw her production drop off a lot last year. Um, and you know, she's recently married and not, not that that, but eventually you, you grow up in a sense and she gave it everything she had. And, and I think you and I talked before we started recording where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I've, I've reached this point, you know, seven seasons in, like it's getting more competitive. Right. Um, what, you know, what, what there, and at this point, what is there more to accomplish? You know, rookie of the year and WSL championships. It's not like she's leaving empty handed. She's, you know, it's like, she gave, it's not like she played for two years. She played an entire very good um, NWSL career. And, right. you know, so even with, if Nicole Barnhart was to retire, we know like, okay, all right, well, they've reached the point where they just, they're done. And, and there's life after soccer. And she's like, Tim Rack was married and she got married. And um, yeah, it was a little surprising, but at the same time, just seeing, the past season and her production dropping off and, you know, seeing Laura, you know, opt for younger players. It, 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 it makes sense actually. And yeah, we're, yeah. we're going to get to that. Maybe 
and we just saw another one today, right? Another retirement. Um, Beverly Yang is from. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. her and Erica and Bianca Henninger, you know, I, I've been referring to those as natural retirements, which is something that mm-hmm. we, for the most part, have not seen yet in NWSL. Players who have had long runs, you know, um, you know, Erica and Bianca here from the first season, Bev from mm-hmm. the second, from the second season, um, you know, they're hitting a certain point of like, hey, I'm not getting the minutes. I've passed the window to make the national team or maybe I'm ready to do something else and I'm not a starter anymore. You know, like, like you said, Tim Rack getting married, you know, it's like, you know, thinking about it, it's like, all right, what do, what, what do I really want to do? As opposed to the retirements that we had um you know, say five years ago, Jasmine Reeves, who was the rookie of the year following Erica Timrak, who said, nah, I got this great job offer from Amazon. I'm good. <laughs> you know? So, so, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, we're, we're hitting this point that we've never had the pleasure of enjoying before of, wow, the league's actually been around long enough that some of the people are like, yeah, I played a good seven years. I mean, think think about it. In any mm-hmm. pro pro sport, except maybe baseball, where they seem to last forever because you know they don't really, <laughs> they don't really have to run as much. You know, um, that yeah. like like seven years is is a pretty solid mm-hmm. pro pro mm-hmm. career. You know, um, and I'm looking forward to you know to just being stronger and stronger as you go. Like like you were saying, yeah, it is more competitive, and of course we have to factor in as well that if expansion had happened for 2020, say that you know Sacramento did come in for 2020, well that could have kept some of these people in one more year, right? Because right. every team would have given up a player or two for a new team. You know that. And then that new team has options. So suddenly there, there's more spots. But, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're on that verge, you're like, yeah, I don't I don't need another year to, you know, I'm, I'm ready. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's 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 weird. I mean, I mean, I, I feel like some grandparent going, oh, this is so great. We're reaching this age mm-hmm. and stage and, you know, that that kind of thing. But it <laughs> but it is it's it, it's significant. These retirements are very, very different from the bulk of the retirements we've, we, we've seen in the past, you know, and, and like right. you were referencing the older Utah players, it's like, that's something that any club has to think about. It's like, yeah, we have these amazing players. We have Kelly O'Hara and Becky Sauerbrunn and Desiree Scott, you know, like, but no player is going to play forever. You constantly have to keep that flow coming up. You know, and then aside from the whole, well, here we are in an Olympic year, so much like last year, you know, your big stars are going to be gone. Um, And I'm Mm -hmm. sure all the coaches were paying attention this past weekend of like, especially when the Canada Costa Rica game was scoreless for so long is they're probably thinking like, Oh my God, what if I actually have my Canadian players this summer? What does that mean? You know? So it's, it's all the different pieces falling into place. So now all these teams know it's like, okay, the Canadians will be gone. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Asian mm-hmm. qualifying is wrapping up and yeah. So it's just, it's, it's interesting how all those things have to go in a certain order, right? Like if expansion had right. happened in December, we wouldn't have had that very quiet time of no moves, right? Like everyone was waiting for expansion and then that mm-hmm. didn't happen. So boom, we get back from Christmas and it's like trade signing, trade signing. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, and I'm sure mm-hmm. we're going to have more, you know, 
for the next few weeks. But right, uh, right. I also want to ask you, what do you think about um, Becca Moros being waived? Because I don't know if that was part of, uh, you know, Craig coming on board or mm-hmm. making making room for somebody else. Or I've no, I know I have no idea if the player asked for that. But just just your thoughts on Becca? As I mean, again, and another veteran. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. she played in WPS as well. But a, another veteran who's been a big part of this league. Yeah, kind of, kind of taken by surprise by that one as well. Um, she was injured a um, mm-hmm. great portion of the season last year, so you know, expected her to get back. She's still very solid. Was you know, such a great addition to the defense to, to the defense. And you know, who can forget her mocking Megan Rapino flopping? You know, who can forget? <laughs> um, <laughs> Good point. Good point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we definitely, you know, another thought she was going to come back from injury and, um, keep going, but, you know, again, it comes, it comes down to these older players and having played so long in the league, just kind of like realizing, probably thinking, is it, is it even worth it to go another season? I've done it. I mean, Becca Morales won an NWSL championship with SC Kansas city in 2015. Um, and yeah probably the same thing just but I know she was um offered a contract at the end of the season but I don't believe she resigned um with the team yet so I'm not quite sure how that works out and how she's waived but um well I know um even if you're not signed if you if you have been extended a contract offer uh you are still um you know your rights are still held by that team which is why Utah had to, if they weren't going to keep her or if she Mm -hmm. wanted to go somewhere else, they did have to waive her. So by waiving her, then, then there, I think there's like a 24 hour period where any other club can claim her. And of course there's a, there's a order for that, which we're always not aware of who's on top of what order. But so I would assuming since we haven't heard her picked up by anyone else that she cleared waivers, right? That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's the phrase mm-hmm. for it. So right now she would be a free agent for, for you know, for people to be talking mm-hmm. to, but, be, but because they had offered her a contract, they did have to officially waive her and say, we're not holding on to these rights. And that, okay. and that's why too, when you have, you know, some of the trades we've seen where they said like Sky Blue traded Julia Ashley's rights to mm-hmm. what I think it was Portland. It's like, well, they hadn't signed Ashley, but because they had offered her a contract last year, even though she turned it down, they still held on to her rights. So, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's like we all need to have a preseason class uh, on like mm-hmm. and sell contracts 101, right? Um, sure. Myself myself included, because I, I feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm learning something new every week but yeah, um, yeah i hope i hope becca stays around um you know mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. you know it i think players can play later you know talking about tim rack's retirement i'm not saying oh that's normal to retire to but it, it's like if your body holds up and right you're you're in, in a situation that's good for you you know where you're contributing the team or you like where you're playing or, or you know or whatever that's great to see mm-hmm. because i think as we have more great players come out of college and think about with expansion next year and probably the following year, mm-hmm. you'll suddenly have a lot of new spots, which I would think means we'd suddenly have a lot of young players again. So I would think 
some of those veterans, like having a veteran who can mentor, you know, even like in a player coach role, I, I would guess would be invaluable. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I never want to, um, I think that's one thing that can just bug me a little bit is using people's age as like a, a thing of retirement or they're not be good enough because I mean, you look at Nicole Barnhart and she's still killing it out there, you know? Yeah. Um, and she, yeah. you know, so, I mean, she clearly has shown that age is but a number if you're still committed and dedicated, <laughs> you know, and and, and, and and genetically you're, you're holding up yeah, because, because we've exactly. seen some players like, uh, I mean, when I first started working with Allie Wagner and, and hearing that, you know, the big reason she retired at age 29 was just mm. her body wasn't holding up, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that, that it's like, that wasn't, she didn't have horrible injuries so much as just like recurring injuries that her body couldn't recover from. Right. You know, and, and at Mm -hmm. least in in Nicole's case, like goalkeepers do tend to last longer, you know, and it Mm -hmm. was really cool to see her last season. I'm like, wow, you know, she's, she's, (laughs) she must be, she must be beating out Abby Smith in practice. So that's Mm kind of cool. And, and I always like to tell people too, and that when they talk about, Oh my God, you know, Carly's 37. I said, well, sometimes it's not the age, it's the mileage. And when you look at the bulk of her early career, there either wasn't a league or the league had a really small schedule or she sat out because she was recovering from an injury or like you look at the, some of the years of the national team were like 2009, they like barely played at all, you know, and then you combine that with her like renewed intensity kind of like 2012 and on you look at pictures mm-hmm. of her now compared to 10 years ago. She is so much fitter now. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Where I think if she was an intense fitness person in her early twenties, her body might not be able to hold up now. It might be like, okay, we've done this too many times. Right. But I feel like she's, she's hit a stride in her last few years. Like we're not seeing her get many injuries at all. Right. Like she's probably Mm -hmm. taking better care of herself than she was a decade ago, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Like, like if there's a player who can contribute more power to them, especially as each year, we're seeing the compensation increase. I mean, when you, when you look at the absolute number, it's not that impressive, but the fact that the minimum salary has gone from 16 to 20 in one year, that's huge. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And you're, and you're not paying housing, right. And your insurance is covered and there's a per diem for food. It's like, again, it's, it's not luxury living, but that's huge compared to, anything that's come before it. Oh, and now that the housing is year round, like all of those things, I think just is paving the way for maybe someone like Barnhart to go. Yeah, it's worth it another year. Right. You know, I've still, I've still, I've still got it in me. It's worth it. As opposed to like, I think you can do the starving out of college playing for the love of the game, maybe a season or two in your Mm twenties, maybe a little bit longer, but at, at a certain point, you know, Barnhart's 38, you're not going to do that forever. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, And uh, what do you, what do you think about um, just generally for, for the Royals um, coming into their third season uh, last season, their average attendance over 10,000. So first ever Mm -hmm. season that we had two clubs in NWSL with average attendance over 10,000. And, 
And what was impressive about that was usually you see kind of a sophomore slump, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the second the second season, people are like, oh, it's not as exciting. Um, granted, we had a little bit of a, a World Cup push, um, mm-hmm. you know, after, after the World Cup. But what's what's the vibe in, in Salt Lake and, and the suburbs for interest in the Royals? Yeah, I definitely think it's growing. Um, you know, you, you have your first season where it's, you know, like an awe sort of thing. And, and people, you know, first game, people want to come out and, you know, check it out. And there was a huge marketing effort for that. But, um, you know, the team is now more of a mainstay now. People are more familiar with the team, the players. Um, yeah, the, the fan, there's more interest, not just in like, the Royals itself, but the league, you know, as a whole. And that's, that's definitely something you, you want to see. You, you want to see like fans pay attention to the entire league instead of, you know, just the club, because you want to know how the other teams are doing. So you're not only gaining fans for like the team itself, but, you know, people are becoming familiar with, you know, those, those names that come to Rio Tinto. And, and, you know, it's, it's not just like, you know, all about Alex Morgan or, um, you know, people are, are excited to, to see, you know, the, the young players that um, are coming around. So um, I think the interest is definitely growing, especially for these younger players. I think there was a lot of excitement for the draft um, because I think this was the first time that actually Utah capitalized on it in the past two seasons. And um, yeah, there is, there is excitement for these three young players who are going to, come and compete and um so definitely interest keeps growing um obviously as the season goes on and you know you always start off super strong and you know try to maintain it um and and it does drop off a little bit as the season end but i mean like you said average of ten thousand fans for a season it's pretty good and um we definitely would love to see that grow but um i hear that Salt Lake City can be like the they even do it with their men's team where they're like you know they'll have they'll be super excited for the team and then you know months later they'll just forget about it and you know it's very, <laughs> forget it's about very, it yeah it's it's very it, it can be very lukewarm type of thing where um it, it has its ups and downs um and that's so I, I would say that's normal yeah, for most for most for sure. fandoms I mean the good thing about Utah and and the Salt Lake area, it's like there's not nearly as many sports teams, so it's not as saturated Mm -hmm. a sports market, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like when I came out for the inaugural game, it was so nice to see just how all over the Tribune coverage of that game was, not just in the sports section, but like front page of the front right. section, you know, right, um, right. And it was cool to see, I'm glad you brought up the draft. It was cool to see that uh, Utah had a first round pick for the first time. You know, they didn't last year, they didn't the year before. So, you know, picking Ziara King with the eighth overall pick, like, and she's such an exciting player, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, yeah, that, 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 that builds a nice buzz, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and, and yeah, just maybe having a, a little bit more. It, it's funny, even with a new coach, I feel like it, it makes sense to say having a little bit more stability going into into year three, like another off season where the players have been there, and you know, like everything's everyone's more familiar with everything, right? I mean, that sounds for sure. That's not a silly way to to to, to say it, but uh, right, yeah. Uh, and and I can't wait for you know another 
another few weeks of lots of like signings, trades, retirements, trade, wave. <laughs> just, just like, I can't even keep up. But, uh, but yeah. Cindy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about the Utah Royals and, you know, have fun this season covering the new coach. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. First, if you haven't already heard, the newest edition of the Keeper Notes NWSL Almanac is available for purchase. The 350-page comprehensive guide to the NWSL's first seven seasons features a complete player and coach registry, stats by season, overall stat leaders, color photos, lists featuring attendance, penalty kicks, red cards, and much, much more. You cannot get all this info in one place anywhere else. It's available in print, also available in PDF, and you can order now at keepernotes.com. And with Olympic qualifying over, the next set of games for the U.S. women will be the annual She Believes Cup. This will be the fifth edition of the tournament, and this year they'll face England, That'll be March 5th in Orlando, then Spain, March 8th at Red Bull Arena in Harrison, New Jersey, and then March 11th, they'll face Japan in Frisco, just north of Dallas. Tickets are already on sale at ussoccer.com, and all games of the tournament, even the ones not featuring the USA, will be broadcast live by one of the ESPN channels. And we just got the details for the two April friendlies that the U.S. women will play before the 2020 NWSL regular season begins. They'll host Australia April 10th at Rio Tinto Stadium in Utah and then face Brazil in San Jose on April 14th. Tickets for those games go on sale to the public next Wednesday, February 19th. And last, mark your calendars again. April 18th is the beginning of the NWSL regular season. October 17th is when the regular season ends. Schedule should be out soon, fingers crossed. All teams already have their season tickets on sale, and preseason starts March 9th. All right, that's it for this episode, the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, the official scarf supplier to USL, US Soccer, and MLS. You can get custom scarves for your group, your supporters group, or just your fan club or your team at roughneckscarves.com. And hey, if you're tired of the same old uniforms and cookie cutter templates from Nike and Adidas, if you're looking for a completely custom kit for your youth club or your Sunday adult league, or hey, even a pro team, Icarus FC can help you create the the kit of your dreams at an affordable price. So let them help you design your new custom kit today at IcarusFC.com. And that is I-C-A-R-U-S-F-C.com. And thanks to everyone who's been listening. Thanks to everyone who shares this podcast with a soccer friend. And many thanks to Sean for making this podcast possible. But now she's anybody's girl.